Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. A very pleasant good morning to all of you. Good to see you here on this fine day. Have a number of visitors with us in the audience today, and thank you for being here. I will do an introduction to the class, not for the visitors, but for the ones that are here. You're going to say, when I started this, we've already heard that. I know you have. I want you to hear it again. Very important. A man told me one time, he'd been a member of the church many years, was a great Bible student. He said, I just can't understand the prophets. Of course, we're not talking about Nehemiah. He was not a prophet, but he was reading in the major minor prophets. He said, I just can't understand the prophets. I wanted to say neither can we, but I didn't because he meant he had no understanding. We, If we've studied, we have some understanding, but a lot we don't know. But the reason he couldn't understand the prophets is he did not know the history. He did not know how Nebuchadnezzar related to these things. He did not know how uh, Moses related in many cases. He did not know how Isaiah related. I understood that. He did not know the language. And it's very difficult not to know the history, the language, or customs and still understand the prophets. When I was a little boy... My mother sat me on her knee, and I remember this, three, four years old, and told me stories that were found in the Bible. The flood, Jonah and the whale. Of course, it was not a whale. It was a great fish, but her Bible said whale. Many other things, and she told me those stories in an isolated way. And I love them, and I profited from them. Brother Glenn, each Sunday night, talks to our kids and teaches them things they do not understand, but they profit from it. Just like I, when I grew up, fitted Noah and Daniel and Jonah into the big scope of things, they will do that too. That's the way children are. But we as adults need to fit them into the scope of things, and we don't do that when we don't understand the history and the customs and what's really taking place, and I want to keep on emphasizing that. My mother told me, my mother never told me when she talked about the flood that Noah's mom and dad were outside. Grandmother and granddaddies were outside. Maybe many of his children. I don't think he just had three children. It's my opinion. He was 600 years old. He might, God might have spared him, just had three sons who were, uh, just had one wife each. Quite unusual. Never talked about his nieces and nephews, his neighbors, just that God closed the door. And he broke the earth up, water gushed out, came from heaven. That's what she told me. Did not tell me that the ark was a type of Christ's church. I would not have understood that if she'd done it. That's just the way my mother told stories. Jonah uh, was not taught to me, so I would know God loved the Gentiles. My mother probably didn't even know that. Didn't know the difference in Jew and Gentile at that point. 
But I came later to learn that it was not just the seed of Abraham, but it was Gentiles and also a prefiguration of the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. As Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, three days, three nights, etc. So the point I'm making is this. We cannot understand the Bible until we know more about the Bible than the Bible. We need to know that history, secular history, contemporary history. We need to know the customs that the Bible just takes for granted that we don't know. So be it. So we're going to start today, and don't turn there now unless you want to, because it's going to be a while before I get there. Nehemiah chapter 415 is where our lesson starts, but let's start in 605 B.C. We've already started there three times, so let's do it again. Nebuchadnezzar beats the uh, uh, Syrian army to death up at Carchemish. And the empire changes over to the Babylonian Empire. Nebuchadnezzar in 605 B.C. goes down to Jerusalem to take Jerusalem, but Nebuchadnezzar, his father, is at the point of death, he finds out. So he goes across the desert and becomes king of the great empire. But he comes back to Jerusalem immediately, besieges it, and he takes the good young men out of that city and takes them into uh into Babylon to be his servants. I want to read you something that we don't normally read, but I'll do it again. I'll do it anyway. Second Kings chapter 20, verses 16 through 18. It's a text that is overlooked, but we need to see it. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, this is Second Kings 20, 6 through 18. Hezekiah was the 12th king of Judah, 12 of 19. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming. When all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Hmm? Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. They shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you whom you will beget. It is important to have a generation down from you, a second generation, third generation, so forth. They'll take away your sons whom you beget and they will make eunuchs shall be made eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. What happened to Daniel and his three fellow Jewish men when they went to Babylon? They were given over to a eunuch. They were put into a eunuch's charge. I think the answer is very understandable. These men were not to have wives. They were not to have children. They were to have Nebuchadnezzar, as their God, they were smart men. They would learn the language and they would do the will of Nebuchadnezzar. At least that's what he thought. That's what he intended. Nebuchadnezzar died 33 years later. The empire had started back in 626. He took over in 605. That's 21 years later. And then 33 years later, he died and there was a man, his son, named Eva Morodak, became king of that empire. Evil Morodak means a fool, a Murdoch, Marduk. Marduk was a god, was the chief god of the Babylonians. And he was the fool of Marduk. He loved Marduk. He promoted Marduk. But then when he died, another man took over, and he didn't do the same thing. 
he did something, Belshazzar, he did something very different. He put another god above Marduk that did not please the powers that be in Babylon. Guess what? The priests were pleased with that, some of them, because Marduk had not been good to them. And that night, Daniel chapter 5, when the river was drained by the Persians and the army marched toward the city of Babylon, the hand came and wrote on the wall, the priests opened the gates, the floodgates of the river, to let the Persians in. I'm sorry, these were the priests of Marduk because they wanted to get rid of Belshazzar and they got rid of him. But the Babylonian Empire ended that night, 539 B.C. So from 626 to 539, 87 years, an empire, just 87 years. Why? Because God planned it that way. That's what we have to see. Anytime we open the Bible, what is God's plan? What do we see here? Tower of Babel is being built. Is that God's plan? No. It was his plan to stop it, though. He stopped it for a reason. On and on we could go. God is working. He's working for what? He is headed toward Calvary, Pentecost. He started on that journey from the Garden of Eden. And every step you take through the Old Testament, he gets closer. Not just time-wise, but he gets closer in bringing it to pass. He gets closer in putting things together, fixing the puzzle to make it pass. Why? Because eternal salvation could be had only by the cross. Well, God can do anything, can't? No, he can't. He could not save mankind without paying for mankind's sins. It is impossible. God could not just excuse the sins. He had to pay for the sins. That payment was made at Calvary and announced at Pentecost a little later. No other way. He had to sacrifice his son. We grew up with the idea that since God can do anything, he could have authorized various ways of our salvation. He could authorize only one way. The means we inherit that salvation is different. Did baptism have to be? God could have made another way, but he didn't. He said, we're baptized into Christ. We're baptized for the remission of sins. We're put into baptism as an old creature. We're raised a new creature. God decided that arbitrarily. I probably wouldn't have made that decision, but God did. It's the way it is for all humanity. No, But his son... And contact with his blood was absolutely essential. I've asked this question before. I'm going to ask it again because I hope you've slept on it. Why did God not erect a cross at the gate of the Garden of Eden? And when Adam and Eve came out so embarrassed, he said, look to the cross. You're going to be saved. I asked that one time and somebody said, God could have done that. Well, Mike could have done that, but what would that have meant to 
Adam and Eve. What good would that have done them? Not understanding it? No idea really of what sin was except it had totally humiliated them. And no idea what forgiveness was because they had never experienced it. Man needed to understand that he could not deliver himself. He had to be delivered. He needed to learn that there was such a thing as substitutionary sacrifice. Someone doing it for him. Something he couldn't do, doing it for him. Now this is going to get me in trouble, I guess, but I won't say it again anyway. When God took, uh, told Abraham to take Isaac to Mount Moriah, they go up the mountain. God ties Isaac. I mean, uh, Abraham ties Isaac after they've built the altar. Lays him on the altar. Takes a knife. Puts it to his throat and starts to pull it when, when a voice stops him and tells him, do not harm the lad. Why? They hear a noise in the bushes. You know what that noise is? It is Isaac. So Abraham releases Isaac. And Abraham and Isaac go get Isaac. And Abraham sacrifices Isaac. I told you I'd get in trouble because that sounds crazy, doesn't it? The Hebrews writer says he did. Offered up Isaac. A substitutionary sacrifice. If you're a Christian, you died on the cross. You know that? You died with Christ. A substitutionary sacrifice. Oh, that's big. And man needs to understand God's holiness. Man needs to understand what holy ground is. Holy ground is when God says, this is holy ground. That's what it is. Why? Because I said it. I designated that as such. It's that 10 square feet right there. This ground is different from this ground. Yes, because this is holy. This ground grows corn. This won't. No, both grow corn. But this is holy right here. Ouch. Wash your clothes. Tomorrow's a big day. My clothes are clean. Wash them again. Ridiculous. No. Consecration. Holiness. There was a time when there were five priests in God, among God's people. And God reduced that to three immediately. Why? Because of a lesson in holiness. Because two of those priests decided to do what they wanted to do. And they were given the holy zap. And their daddy and two brothers were left. Scary. But that affected Israel. And many years later, when the high priest had to go into the most holy place, he was frightened. He would have a meeting with the counselors. They would tell him what to do. And he, being a Sadducee later at least, sometimes didn't want to do exactly what the Pharisees wanted him to. I think we can do it this way. I think we can do it a certain way. They know you got to do it this way. And on controversial things, that would make him take an oath that he would do it a certain way. Well, could he violate that oath? No, he remembered Nadab and Abihu. He wasn't about to violate an oath. And we don't have a record of a high priest being unclean as he enters that holy place, most holy place. But you can be sure that if he had been, he would have said, nope, get the substitute high priest, I can't go in. 
because of a Nadab and Abihu. And men needed to know about God's dwelling place. And we need to know about God's dwelling place, as a matter of fact. It is in heaven. And when we go before God's throne of grace, it is not in this church building. It is not in a physical temple. It is in heaven. In God's holy place. It's a serious thing when we bend our knee and lift our voice to God. Because we're in a different place. Our feet are on the ground. Our minds are before God in heaven. Now just to complicate things a little bit, I'm going to I'm going to look at two passages and then we'll quickly get on to the next point. But I want to show you something in the uh in the New Testament and then the Old Testament. This passage is Second Corinthians five twenty one. I'm going to read first. And if you're going there, Second Corinthians five twenty one, turn over to Leviticus four three and leave your finger in there. I'll show you some of the complexities that sometimes we don't quite understand. I am not a Hebrew scholar. In fact, I'm not even much of a Hebrew student. But I have friends who are. And I'm taking this from them. For This is Second Corinthians 5.21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him, Christ, who knew no sin, become sin or to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Heard a powerful sermon one time. A man had preached that the greatest sinner on earth was Jesus Christ. And of course he said that because this passage right here. All the sins, all our sins became his sins so he became the greatest sinner. That is not true. I want you to look at the Hebrew text, Leviticus 4.3, and listen to this, hang on to it. If the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has, offered, which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish as a sin offering. Now you see this word, this is Hebrew now. I think Paul is using this kind of terminology in Greek though back in, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5. For his sin, that word sin is katath. His sin, which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish, as a sin offering. You know what sin offering is translated from? Katath. It is the same word. It is, the word offering is not here. He, The Lord... Let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has, which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish as a sin. The young bull is called a sin, but translated sin offering because that's what it was. That strange Hebrew word can be translated sin or sin offering. So really, as Paul applies this terminology in Greek, he made him who knew no sin be a sin offering for us. We might become the righteousness of God. See, that's complex. It's difficult. But as you study, you come to things like that. The point is, Nehemiah is not some isolated book. 
It competes with Malachi to be the last book of the Old Testament written in 420 B.C. It is not just about determination, construction, and so forth. It's about holiness. It's about doing things God's way. It's about respecting God and all that God does and is. Remember, there's a high priest in Jerusalem. His name is Elisha. We talked about him last week. But when we get down to chapter 8, which we will in a few weeks, so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of the men and women so that all could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Where is Elisha? He's the high priest. Ezra's a priest, but why Ezra? Why didn't Elisha do that? Because Elisha was not the quality of man to do that. We'll learn that later. Ezra did it. Ezra was the man who could represent God better. Ezra is the man who could explain the law better. And that's what happens here. Now going into chapter 4, very briefly, Sanballat and his crew are, of course, after the Jews, after uh, uh, Nehemiah and his group. They mocked him, saying, what are these feeble Jews doing? Did they really think these men were feeble? No. They were just putting them down. They knew they were a strong group. They knew they had come by orders of the king. They knew they had the material to finish that. They knew they had the the means of finishing. But look what these feeble Jews are doing. Will they? Are they really going to enclose themselves? Are they going to shut themselves up in this? They can't do that. Will they offer sacrifices? No, they'll not get around to this. Will they complete it today? They think they're going to just do this. It's all over with. Will they revive from the stones? The st- will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? This mess around here, they're not going to make anything of it. Knowing, of course, they could with God's help. St. Ballot knew that. But put them, talk against them, put them down. Don't give them any credit for anything. And that's when Tobiah says, if a fox goes down that wall, he'll knock it down. <laughs> This is a thick wall made by huge stones. But that's what Tobiah said. And the last thing before we get into new text, I love the prayer that uh, Nehemiah prayed as he responded in verse 4. Hear, O our God, for we're despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder the land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity. Do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. This is just a put on. That's what Nehemiah said. Don't let them get by with it. Turn it around on them. And of course, that did happen. So we built a wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. I have that blackened in my text. I have it in bold print. For the people had a mind to work. As we study, as we study Nehemiah, and I've preached on it many times before, we go through and underline things like this because they're so important. But sometimes we finish a sermon on Nehemiah and the congregation says, that's wonderful. There were no problems. They stuck together like glue. Everything was Okay. Hold on a minute. That's not exactly the case, but I love it. I love this thing looking real perfect right now. 
But inside, there's a lot of clawing and hair pulling. You can be sure it's happening. So look at verse 7. We're in new turf now. It happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. Now, folks, they're no longer going to make fun. The thing has gotten too far to be made fun of. It's like the uh, two football teams meeting, and, you know, we're just, we're just uh, have one team over here, and the cheerleader's saying, ah, these people are rats. They can't do anything. They, and, and, you know, the score at the halftime becomes 45 to nothing, and, you know, the cheers keep going, but they change. You can't just keep on doing that and saying they're stupid and ignorant because they're beating your team 45-0. And that's what's happening right here. They became very angry. All of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. There's the solution. If we attack them enough so as to put them down and divide the group, confuse the group, then we've got it made. We've got to divide and conquer. We can't conquer without dividing. We thought we had them, but we don't have them. There is a nevertheless here. Incidentally, what is what is uh, uh, what is uh, Nehemiah trying to do? Nehemiah is building, rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, not around the temple. The temple's in Jerusalem, but he's building the wall around Jerusalem, two point eight miles long. It's been torn down. I don't know when. The gates have been burned. Ten of them. I don't know when. But he's building up the low walls and restoring the gates. That's what's happening now. Nevertheless, in verse 9, we made our prayer to our God. And because of them, our enemies, we set a watch against them day and night. So Nehemiah, a great leader, is saying, we're on guard here. Don't have to worry about this. We're taking everything as it comes, and we're going to finish this wall. Then Judah said, and Judah probably not the man, but the representative of the tribe, uh, they came and say, the strength of the, this, the laborers is failing. You know, we're getting weaker and weaker. I mean, building this wall and all this stuff. There is so much rubbish that we're not able to build a wall. Oh, this is exactly what Sanballat wanted to hear. I don't know that the message got to him, but this is what he's trying to evoke. This batter is so big, we cannot handle it. Nehemiah, let's get out of here while we can. Our adversaries said, our adversaries said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause their work to cease. This is what Judah's saying. Judah's saying, this is what they're saying about us. Negative, negative, negative. What would God's people have done without good leadership? Any church that falls, it falls because of its leadership. Leadership comes in many ways. The eldership, the pulpit, the teachers. But when we have poor leadership, we don't progress. We make no progress. We can't. Or we might get bigger. But I'm talking about doing the real thing of growing for God. Not so. When I was in South Georgia, a gentleman came in with a denominational group and built Metal building out in the country from Claxton. 
And he built a church of over 3,000 people in just a few weeks. And he thought God was with him. I didn't think he was because he knew what he was teaching. So sad. He took me to task on radio. I didn't want to get into a fight, but I told him. I said, if you want to debate it, we'll debate it. He didn't want to do that. I don't like to finish this story, but I will. He later moved into North Georgia and murdered his wife. That's the kind of man he was. Terrible. All right, after the Jews heard this, so it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came, they told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. These, you know, I have trouble when I read Nehemiah. I don't understand all of it. But the Jews that live nearby might have been those who were permanent residents there. Back from the time of the time that uh, Zerubbabel came and rebuilt the temple. And they set up their houses there and so forth. So they come back and said, you know, we know these people. And uh, we, uh, uh, wherever we turn, they will be upon us. Nehemiah said, thank you. Here's a leader. Therefore, I position men behind the lower parts of the wall. I found the walls where they were still torn down, and I put men there to defend it. At the openings, the gates had not been completed. I put them at the gates. I set the people according to their families with their swords and spears and bows. This is a serious matter, Nehemiah says. We're going to handle it for God. This is the best I know how to do. Let's do it. I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, the rest of the family, do not be afraid of them. After all you heard, don't be afraid of them. I'm scared to death. I mean, these people are, they, they, they're native to this land. I mean, they know what to do. They know how to fight. They got a big army. What do you mean, don't be afraid of them? Remember the Lord. Great and awesome. Fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your houses. These people did have faith. Isn't it terrible sometimes that we lack faith? I hate to tell this story, but I'm going to do it anyway. A gospel preacher, probably in a Great Depression, once said, my prayers get no higher than the ceiling. You know what I believe about him? I believe his prayers got no higher than the ceiling. That's what I believe about him. Had to be that way. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need prayer. We need to believe in prayer. We need to call names in prayer. We need to speak of events in prayer. And we need to speak with faith. And we'll get enlightened when we do it because what we want is not always right. But God will show us the right way through his word, number one, and then sometime by just tripping us making sure that we go the right way, opening doors, closing doors, and so forth. So here is Nehemiah. He's doing all he can do right now. Do not be afraid of them. It happened in verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plan to nothing. I like this. The enemies are saying, hey, look what their God has done. Oh, do you believe in Jehovah God? No, but they do. 
pretty active among that nation. Yeah. That all of us return to the wall and everyone to his work. The people who were saying, Nehemiah, we can't do this. Nehemiah, it won't work. Nehemiah, we're not building these walls fast enough. Nehemiah, they're going to come and kill us. They know how to do that. They have the strength to do it. Nehemiah said, don't be afraid. Fear not. All of us return to the wall, everyone to his work. Verse 16, so it was from that time on that half my servants worked at construction while the other half held the spears, the swords, the bows, and wore armor, and the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Nehemiah, I've got a proposal for you. I mean, you're wasting, you're wasting talent here. You're wasting labor. You've got half your men standing as soldiers and guards with their instruments when they could be working on the wall. Let God protect you and do, uh, go ahead and work on the wall. Nehemiah would have said, are you crazy? We're going to ignore these men? We're going to ignore what they're saying? And let God do Well, he's capable, isn't he? Yes, he's capable. You know, when he gave Gideon a job, he, Gideon raised an army of 32,000 men. And God said, that's too many. And Gideon said, all the cowards go home. Lost 22,000. Came down to 10,000. God said, that's too many. Finally called that down to 300, and God said, that's enough. That was a different time, a different place, a different situation. And God won the battle, of course. God could have won this battle, but he didn't come down and talk to Nehemiah in that fashion. And Nehemiah had to do what Nehemiah had to do. He said, we're going to arm men and make soldiers of them. We're going to protect this as best we can for God's work. And he did. And God evidently approved of that. He would have been foolish. He would have been foolish not to have prepared. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that one hand they worked with construction and the other hand held a weapon. Now, I want to stop right here and say that's a bit of an exaggeration. The next verse points that out. But, you know, a block mason or a brick mason or stone mason and cannot work with one hand here and a sword over here. Can't do that. But it says every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built. But they had on their swords. It was at hand. It was not in the hand, but it was at hand. I've done a lot of construction work. I never wanted a sword by my side, though, when I was on a roof nailing shingles. I just, and if you live in Jones Valley, I might have built your house, by the way. Isn't that nice? Worked on it at least. It was uncomfortable. But I don't read of any complaints. And he goes on to say, and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me, that the trumpet, of course, was a call to battle. Had everything ready. If uh, that trumpet sounded, everybody dropped everything they were doing except weapons, and they rushed to the scene and said, we're ready to fight. Then I said to the nobles, those nobles, I'm not sure, are getting their hands wet or dirty. The noble rulers, the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive. We're separated from one another on the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. 
I don't want to make this too big and too redundant, but I have to say one thing about this. Nehemiah did not have grasshopperitis. Some of them had it. It's not called that here, but we're grasshoppers in their sight. Not said here, but they're bigger than we are said here. <clears throat> Nehemiah didn't believe that. Moses didn't believe that. Joshua and Caleb didn't believe that. Then the spies did. And the people believed the ten. They were delayed by 40 years getting into the Canaan land. Ouch. This grasshopperitis did not enter Nehemiah's mind. Neither should it enter ours. We can't afford it. We can't afford to say we can't do that kind of work because we, we you know, it's too dangerous. People are going to kill us. We can't do that. So we labored in the work. Half the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. At the same time, I said to the people, let each man and his servants stay at night in Jerusalem that they may be our guard by night and working party by day. That's another sacrifice. Separated from their families, but they had to do it. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off their clothes except that everyone took them off for washing. I've never done anything like that. I've never gone to the river and pulled my clothes off and washed them, laid them on a rock and let them dry as best they could, put them back on and went back to work. I don't, I shouldn't say you haven't done that either. Maybe you have, but I've never done that. But it looks kind of tough to me. But these men were dedicated to the Lord because they had a man named Nehemiah who was already in the trenches and he said, Come and get in the trenches with me. Not go get in the trenches and I'll sit here and cheer for you. Come and get in the trenches with me. We're going to overcome this enemy. We're going to get the job done. I love Nehemiah. I love God's march to Calvary. I want us to keep on thinking about that. I want us to see that his, his holy place had to be protected the temple had been rebuilt years earlier. They moved in in 516 B.C. This is around 440 right now. So several years ago, but it had been desecrated. We'll see that later. And Nehemiah said, we're going to protect it. And thank God he did. I think I heard the bell. Did I hear the first bell? Wow, that's bad. It's good. We won't start in chapter 5. I thank you for being here. You're such a great class. Appreciate all your questions. <clears throat> if you have any, let me know. Let's bow our heads, please. Gracious Father, thank you for the blessings we have in Christ. Thank you for our preachers, our leaders, our elders. Thank you for our teachers. Thank you for this church who will stand with Nehemiah as he said, let us rise up and build. We pray through Christ. Amen. Don't run in the hall. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.